So welcome back to the Just Picks Podcast, episode 356. If you listen to your podcast like I do, sometimes driving on long trips in the car, all right, I listen to several episodes in a row. And I hope you're not totally annoyed with the Just Picks podcast theme. If you are, well, here's some insight into the piece to help lighten your burden. First, if you listen closely, you'll hear two electric guitars, left and right panned, right? Playing melody and harmony. Kind of figure out which, which uh, channel has the melody, which has the harmony. There's bass in there, there's drums. But a lot of folks don't notice there's an acoustic guitar playing a rhythm track in there and also a mandolin in the tune. So the next time you're annoyed hearing that song over and over again, pick out an instrument and see if you can hear the mando. That's a technique I use a lot when I'm mixing a record or whatever. I will focus on a particular instrument so. Well, I can't tell you how exciting it is to have our next guest on today's show. I've known Randy Brandt before Wi-Fi and the Internet. Randy is a chops monster who can play just about every instrument and every style. We met as undergraduates, and Randy has continued his music career ever since we met as undergraduates. Randy and I will discuss his influences, favorite players, approach to tone, and his obsession with a Fender Stratocaster. You will not want to miss a single episode with Pennsylvania's amazing Randy Brandt. First, some news. In March of 2021, Fender announced that it was expanding its lineup of the affordable Squire Affinity electric guitars with the release of new Stratocaster, Telecaster, and Jazzmaster models, as well as a number of new bass guitars. Some of the new features include a single-coil-equipped Jazzmaster model, as well as an HH-configured Strat and Tele, and new Jaguar base models. These new models come in some amazing new finishes like Lake Placid Blue, Charcoal Frost, Metallic, and Burgundy Mist. I mean, the, the guitars are just beautiful looking. Fender has also updated the existing Affinity line with some newly styled four-string offerings, a Flame Maple Top-equipped HHS Strat, and a tweaked Twelly with an Indian Laurel fretboard. So those Fender uh, Squires are just amazing and certainly worth looking at whether you're uh, looking for an affordable instrument or a travel instrument or whatever, they're really worth checking out. You know, while we're on the subject of affordable instruments, very exciting to uh, announce that Epiphone has announced its own line of collaborative guitars with Guns N' Roses Guitars Slash, right? The Epiphone Slash collection includes a Les Paul Standard available in four colors, Appetite Burst, November Burst, Anaconda Burst, and a Vermilion Burst. A Victoria Les Paul Standard Gold Top and a J45 available in either Vermilion Burst or November Burst. The Epiphone Slash Collection offers similar models to its Gibson counterpart at obviously a much more accessible price point. Now these guitars are really worth checking out. In terms of the specs, the Les Paul Standard features a mahogany body with a AAA flamed maple veneer, the Epiphone Loctone Tunematic Bridge, and Stop Bar Tailpiece. Graph tech nuts, C-shaped neck profile, color-coordinated hardware, and an appointments and Epiphone, and all the amazing Epiphone strap locks. I mean, we're really worth checking out. On the other end of the economic spectrum, Kemper owners can enjoy some new updates to their rig with their new Profiler Update OS 8.5. Although it doesn't feature any new effects or tones, it does take a big step forward in the portability department with the introduction of the Profiler Rig Editor for iPad OS. Connectable to the Profiler Stage 4 board with an onboard Wi-Fi chip, either directly or via WPS, and a local router, and to the Profiler Head and Rack via a local router, 
Profile Rig Editor allows users to add, swap, and modify effects to their heart's content on their iOS tablet. This is great news for Kemper owners. In the technology and recording category, a new plugin from Italy's Nembrini is called the Acoustic Voice Plugin, and it transfers your recorded guitar signal into the sound of classic acoustics. You can dial up the sonics of a Gibson L00, a Guild D1400CE, or a Martin 0028EC, and apply it to a track you have recorded on your own instrument. It's kind of like a modeling amp for acoustic guitars. The plugin combines emulations of six classic acoustic guitars, three microphone emulations with position and distance controls, and five effects including oppression, chorus, tremolo, delay, and reverb. Look in the show notes for more information about the acoustic voice plugin and the other products we've mentioned in today's news. Now let's join in on the first episode of my conversation with Chops Monster and all-around great guy, Randy Brandt. Oh my goodness, there's Randy Brandt. Mr. Ma. Name that artist, who is that? I think that's Satriani, isn't it? You are exactly right, that is Satchman. Is that from Surfing with the Alien? Yes, that is. Surfing with the Alien. You win because a lot of, I, I've been opening up some, some shows with that and a lot of people just don't know what that is, which is really funny. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah, they, they, they don't know who that is, isn't that funny? <laughs> is that your studio behind you? Yes, you are in my, this is not a green screen, this is the home studio. Yes, it is. Uh, I am so excited to see you and to see that special place. <laughs> wow. Yeah, th this studio is divided into three functional areas. There's this post-production space right here. I have a ISO, ISO booth back there. It's got guitar amps and it's a vocal booth. and It's big enough for, I've had a drummer in there. And the other side of the building is my mastering suite with 10 speaker systems, literally, with acoustats and uh, four or five different high-end uh, amplifiers. And so we master over there, which is crazy. Well, you and I haven't talked about this very often, but you were one of my early inspirations when it comes to high-end audio. Yeah. Oh, oh and, really? And now, 30 years later, I have two Lin turntables. Yeah. Uh, Lin amplifiers, power amplifiers. Just about everything I have is Lin now. But right. um, not that I'm, there are lots of great components out there. I just seem to have aligned with them over the years. What, what, what speakers do you use? Uh, the Lin uh, K Lead, K E I L I D H. I don't think they make them anymore. They were, um, I bought these in 90. Four, maybe right 93 94 and i've kept them in great shape yeah and then i have a pair of the old large advent speakers from way back in the late 70s early 80s i've had them reconed a couple of times um i've got some jbls from back in the day that uh, there's a there's a lynn dealer up in fort collins colorado that that tunes everything up for me from time to time yeah. that's really cool you know it's yeah. interesting uh I, I have this sense that no music sounds better than music on speakers that were made before 1983. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, technology has changed so much. You're right. And, and well, it's like a, a good bottle of wine. I mean, now they can engineer the flavors that had traditionally been brought out by time and attention. So it's, it's uh, the world is changing. That's for sure. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it has. And, you know, the inter someone once said to me uh, in a show the, the other day that they, they think their Pro Tools 7 uh, sounds vintage now. 
And if, if if you know anything about the 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 joke to that, Pro Tools Seven was a forty-eight bit integer uh, integer mix engine, and now it's sixty-four bit double precision floating point, right? And so it's really a joke to say that Pro Tools Seven sounds vintage. <laughs> so yeah, we we have this romantic attachment to the past that is good, but you have to measure it sometimes, is what I say. It has to be. Uh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Yeah, well, I, I I wasn't sure if I should dress up like a rock star or not, um, but I was thinking about the time when I've met people like Joe Bonamassa or Eric Johnson, and if I met them at the one of the guitar shows or someplace, they look like normal people. So here I am. Well, they they actually are normal people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true. Yeah, yeah. yeah at the heart of it. I, I I have to tell you, um, when I, when I met Steve Vai, right. Yeah. That was that. That was um, really after I, you know, you and I were together. And we, we'll talk about how we got together and stuff. But, you know, I was a, I was in classical by the time I was, you know, really in in col in, in college with you. I was really focusing on the classical thing. Mm-hmm. So I did I didn't know who he was. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't know who Steve I was. And we were sitting there. <laughs> we're lit, Randy. We're literally sitting there, and and he kept saying, "You really don't know who I am." And it was, and I remember I said, "Dude, you don't know who I am." And he just got the biggest kick out of that, and we laughed and laughed, and and it was cool because he was like, "This is actually really cool." He goes, he said, "Let me tell you what I do." <laughs> you know, I'll I'll tell you something about um, fifteen years ago, Steve Vai was playing a show in the Denver area, and a fellow who is now a, a surgeon, a physician, a surgeon was dating uh, Giselle's daughter and he was working in a lab where they drew blood, took blood tests, whatever. And Steve Vai was coming through on tour and there was some situation where he had to have his blood drawn and it had to be tested. And, um, and this, this young fellow who was dating our daughter was bragging to me that he had Steve Vai's mobile phone number because Steve Vai told him, look, call me and tell me the results. And I, of course, he he could not divulge what the reason for the test or any of that stuff. But but he was just bragging up and down that he had Steve Vai's mobile phone. Well, I, I'll tell you a very similar story. I went to uh, my parents moved uh, to Monroeville, Pennsylvania, which is about uh, oh sure about you know it's really 30, 30 minutes from where I am right now. I'm I'm in, in Edgewood, which is just outside the city. But anyways. Um, so I was on my way out to see him. I went to get my haircut in between in a place called, uh, I forget what it's called, but this haircut place in Monroeville on my way to my parents. And I sat down and as I, as I was sitting down, my phone rang and it was one of the guys in my band. Right. And I think it was the drummer. Cause he and I are kind of like the, we were the, we run the band. Right. And, um, which is scary thought having a drummer run a band. <laughs> he's, a good, he's a good guy. But anyway, so the phone rings and, and I said, excuse me, I think this is, this is my drummer. And, and the girl said, you're a drummer. What does that mean? I said, well, I, I play in a tribute band. And she said, so you're, you're into music. I said, yeah. She said, do you know Steve Vai? <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, I don't know him. I said, but I think you mean Steve Vai. I know who he is. She said, he was just here. I said, what do you mean he was just here? She said, yeah, he just had his collar done. And she showed me a color card that he signed with his collar on. And it says Steve Vai and his hair color number in case he comes back, right? It was hysterical. (laughs) So anyways, 
So I take a picture of this thing. So I got this thing, right? And I think it has his number on it. <laughs> <laughs> so we are assembling these uh, really interesting trivia stories about these folks. That's amazing. Well, you know, the, the thing is, is that um, Steve is, it, from my experience of him, and we're not going to talk any more about him after this, but he seems to be a really, really nice guy and interested in those of us that are legitimately interested in what he does. And at, from what I can tell, Randy, just about every guitar player like you Every other guitar player is only one guitar player away right now. You know, so, you know, so like folks like Steve Lukather, you know, right now we're working on and folks like that. So the, the, like the thing is, it's, it's like us. We're, and, and the way I see us is it's level playing field. There's not and we're all tied, you know, for the same, you know, yes. position in, in, in the game. Yes. And that, that's been really cool. I mean, that, that's actually that, that's been cool. Well, anyways, you know, when you and I were setting this up, you were telling a story about when we met, and I have to tell you that was I didn't I didn't remember that, and it seems to be pick related, so I, I'm going to ask you to tell that story again. Picks, let's talk about picks. This is one of the bags I used to hold my picks. Okay. Oh, that's hilarious. You I, know, I have a mountain of these bags for various through various reasons, uh, and you know, I've got picks, right? Uh, I don't have that Manny's pick anymore. It was equivalent to a Fender Medium. But the story of that I recall meeting you, Don, for the first time, I was a freshman in college at IUP, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, for those who might not know. And um, a friend of mine named RB for Ron Bruno, he and I were starting a local college band, uh, which turned out to be called Criminal Mischief, <laughs> which was kind of a fun name, you know, for a band at that time. And we played frat parties and, and all that sort of thing. And... Uh, he asked me to come down to the Newman Center, which was the Catholic Church there, and play in the Folk Mass on Saturday evenings. And there was a rehearsal, I think, one night, and then the Folk night Mass on Saturday. I can't remember, but I remember being in this rehearsal room with a woman in the front who was the music director, and she was taking us through the songs, and we were playing the charts and strumming along. And and I, I looked over at who turned out to be you, this, this nice fellow there. And, uh, and we started talking and I happened to have this pick for Manny's that I had gotten somewhere. And, and I had never been to New York. Of course, since then I've been there 20 times, you know, but, but I'd never been to Manny's or New York at that point. And, and I said, hi, and you said, hi. And, and you said, is that a Manny's pick? <laughs> and you know, that characteristic laugh that people attribute to you. It, and it, that is that like has just cemented in my mind. And you don't know how you got that pick, right? You don't even know how you got it. I don't remember how I got it. It was, I, I don't know. It was in a grab bag at a music store or something. It, it's hard to remember. Right. Yeah. That's just so funny. Well, let's kind of talk about um, you starting out on the instrument. Can you hear me okay? Or is it, is it, I'm going to turn it up just a little bit on my end. I'm having, okay. let me know if you're all right. Cause I, 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 I can hear you. Okay. Now. Yeah. I turn. I actually turned down here, but anyways. Um, okay. So when, did you start out on guitar? I mean, what, when did you start playing and you know, how does like that? So was it guitar? Was it piano? What was it that you started? Cause I know you play a lot of different instruments, but I mean, home's guitar, I guess. Well, you know, thank you. Yeah. When I, uh, it's funny when I, my dad was in the Air Force, okay, and we were stationed in uh, Southern California, Vandenberg Air Force Base, up near Santa Maria, uh, not not too far south of the uh, what's that trendy Central Coast place where uh, all the wine is coming out of now. 
And uh, anyway, so we were, we were going into like, I was going into fifth grade, I think I was 10 years old and they had summer school in the summer and you could go and learn to play guitar or drums or a band instrument. And I thought, boy, I'd like to play the drums. And they said, well, what you need to have is you need this practice pad and you need this kind of drum set of drumsticks and you need, you need the book and all that. And, uh, and I thought, okay, so we go to the music store and they had the drums, you know, the practice pad and the, the two sticks, but they didn't have the book. And my mother says, well, let's, let's wait and come back. Let's not worry about this right now. So a couple of weeks go by and the school is coming up and, and I said, you know, I'd really, maybe I'd rather play guitar. Let me try that. Cause, cause earlier when I was a kid, my folks had bought me this plastic guitar that, that I, you know, tried to play a little bit, but never really got anywhere. Uh, so they got me this folk guitar for, you know, 10 or $20. The body was orange and the top was like a, a maple looking color. And, uh, and I went into this class, it was a group class. You know, I'm 10 years old. It's, you know, 20 kids and this really nice fellow up there who worked at a local music store. And he would he would show us how to play like hang down your head, Tom Dooley, you know, G and D7. Right. And uh, and we played all kinds of uh, folk songs and things like that. And and there was a book that he used oftentimes and the, the music book of songs. It was called uh, Songs for Swinging House Mothers. And it had all these old folk songs and stuff from over the years in it. And uh, anyway, so um, I came home the first day and I could play Tom Dooley. And I'm going like thumb brush, thumb brush on the G chord and then to the D7, you know. And I say, hey, dad, listen to this. Hang down your head, Tom. You know, I'm playing the song, right? And, and he gets up. He goes, hey, that sounds pretty good. He goes, let, let me let me share something with you. And he goes over and puts a record on the turntable and it's the Kingston trio doing Tom Dooley with the finger picking and the, and the banjo and the harmonies and everything. And I thought, wow, you know, this could go a lot of places, right? What a sound. And um, anyway, that's, that's the first time I, I started playing guitar. And then after that summer session ended, there was another kid in the neighborhood who was a couple years older who uh, had an electric guitar and gave lessons. And I, I didn't have an electric guitar then, but I took lessons from him and, and we would learn how to play things like, uh, uh, what was that? Dirty water. Or we'd play Inigata de Vida, you know, or we'd play the chords to uh, Proud Mary you know, that C to A thing, open chord, C, C chord to A chord was a bit, a bit of a change when you're young. It's like, da, 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 da. That was a challenge. Um, so that, so that, that really cemented my interest, you know. And then um, a couple of years after that, uh, my dad was, uh, was transferred. We moved from Southern California to Dayton, Ohio, a town called Fairborn, right next to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, okay, the birth of aviation and all that. And... Um, and my uncle had played electric guitar a little bit as a whim, and he had a uh, he had an old Tysco Del Rey electric guitar, and he had a Supro uh, Royal Reverb with two 10-inch speakers in it, a tube amp from you know made by Valco. I think they built the Supro products back then. 
And so he traded that to my dad for some stereo equipment that he wanted. And my dad gave me this Tysco guitar and the Supro amp. And it was like, you know, I don't know if you call it the beginning or the end of the world, but it was a big change in my world. And I was like strumming along and playing this and God, it was the greatest thing in the world, you know? And, and then there was this, uh, this class they had at the local high school. Um, it was called fame, F A M E famous American musicians and educators. And Chet Atkins was one of the uh, celebrities that supported this. And it was like $175 or something. And we go to these classes on a Wednesday night in one of the rooms at the high school. And I had this guitar, which is the guitar that you saw when I played in Criminal Mischief. It was an acoustic guitar with a pickup in it. And I used it when we played uh, like Take It Easy by the Eagles, you know, that sort of thing. I still have that guitar. But you get the guitar and you get like 10 weeks worth of lessons. And that's where I learned how to play bar chords, for example. Which like once I started going, you know, man, that was that was a big thing. And and then after that class ended, there was a fellow who was the band director. His name was uh, Robert Bob DePiro. And uh, Mr. De, Mr. D, as they called him, Mr. DePiro was the band director. He was really cool. He played guitar in a local nightclub called the Bobby D Quartet that played at this supper club in downtown Dayton, which was a hopping place, you know, back then. And he had lessons in his, he had a, a, a den fixed up for lessons. He had a group lessons. So I would go to lessons with him. It was $3 and 50 cents a lesson for like six of us to go there. And the lessons were 45 minutes and he would show us something, right? Like he would say, okay, here's a new song. It's a hit by Tony Orlando. It's called tie a yellow ribbon. Here are the chords to it. Right. And, and Rand, you play the bass part, which would be like, boom, bing, boom, bing. And then you over here, you do this other thing. And he would have us playing like a combo, right? And then at the end of the lesson, we'd have like 10 minutes where somebody could bring in a record and he would put on the record and figure out part of the song for us. And somebody brought in Led Zeppelin four. And when Mr. DePiro put the needle down for the beginning of Stairway to Heaven, and I heard that acoustic guitar with the flute, that was the first time I'd ever heard that song. And, you know, they play through the song. He says, okay, it's kind of like this, right? I, I, it, was, it was just a real eye-opener. And, and having that kind of um, exposure to a fellow who, you know, had played professionally and uh, played a lot of different settings and understood how instruments could work together and play together uh, was, was a really important, uh, really important step for me. And, and after that, let's see, I was in, that was at the end of my ninth grade. Okay, and then we moved. You know, dad got out of the Air Force. We moved to Western Pennsylvania, Somerset. And um, I didn't take any more formal uh, lessons again until I studied classical guitar in college. And that was uh, Kaufman, Irving Kaufman. Irving Kaufman, right. Yeah, cellist with the Pittsburgh Symphony, also played guitar. He, he, yeah. He, yeah he, his title was Principal Fretted Instruments with the PSO. <laughs> he was a really nice guy. A good guy, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, it's funny, the metronome that I bought for that, for those lessons was a little Franz metronome with the light on top of it, mm-hmm. plugs into an AC outlet. It finally died about two months ago. Unbelievable. After what, 40, 50 years? So let, let's go back to the guy dropping the needle on Stairway to Heaven for a second, because I, I, I like that story. I want to I build on that a little bit, right? 
Sure. Um, what is it that you would describe? So that that doesn't start off as a as a rocker. Everybody knows the song, right? Doesn't start off as a rocker. Why did why did that catch your ear? I mean, what was it about that that caught your ear? I think before that, uh, before I heard that tune, I think the only Led Zeppelin song with which I was really familiar was "Whole Lot of Love." Okay. And "Whole Lot of Love" is you know pretty heavy, pretty noisy, kind of got the psychedelic thing in the middle, you know. That's the only one that I really knew well, or at least familiarly, right? And and when I heard that acoustic guitar and that flute, and I saw Led Zeppelin on the album label, I thought, wow, okay, this, this could be a wider sort of a world, you know, that maybe there's more to all this. And because um, I had heard like Crosby, Stills, Nash and stuff like that, but but that was acoustic music, right? That was full, that was kind of an outgrowth of the folk music. Uh, it wasn't like the the blending of the rock and the, um, and, and the, uh, and the acoustic sound. And so as the song progressed and I hear the 12 string coming in with that, with that, uh, arpeggio from the C down to the A minor, you know, and then the guitar comes in with da, 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 and they go into that solo. I mean, it was probably four weeks that I sat there with a reel to reel recorder back and forth when I was in high school, trying to learn that solo. And that was one of the first solos that I learned note for note mm-hmm. that I could honestly say it sounds like the record. Right? Yeah, Cause some, some guys will say, well, I can play it and they play it and you go, well, yeah, I kind of hear what you're doing. But, but that was the first time that I really thought I, I had nailed a solo and I wanted to play it for all my friends all the time, you know, <laughs> cause it was like, Hey, yeah. look what we did. You know, look what I got. Well, you, you, you bring up something that, that a lot of guitar players talk about. And what I like is you started off by talking about education, that you were pretty committed to the education. You took these classes yeah. and so on. But then what you just described a moment ago is you kind of taught yourself that solo. So I guess the question is, when, when, did, that, when did that slider slide to the other end? And that is you started to realize that you, could, you had learned how to learn the guitar, which is, is really what we all need to do. You know, and a teacher can only show us so much. We've got to learn how to learn it. And so you were able using a real real going, you know, playing it over and over again. But still, I, I always say you can't play what you can't hear. So you had you were starting to really develop your listening and that turned into your playing. Is that is that what happened? You know, the ear, yeah, the listening part, oh my gosh. You know, there are there are many guitar players that really don't listen to what they're playing. Mm-hmm. And um, so the listening part is 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 just really important to me. And uh to hear, like okay, like like in the the nuances, like in um, China Grove, okay, the Doobie Brothers song China Grove. When Tom Johnston goes to that solo, um, I remember playing this song with a bunch of guys, and we were like, okay, you play that, you sing it, you play this, and and my friend John looks at me and says, do you know the solo? And I asked him, does an altar boy know the twenty third song? <laughs> I mean. And, and there's a part in that solo where he's going dee, 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 on the B string on about the 15th fret, and he's bending back and forth, but he's only bending a half step. So the note is like an E to an E flat, which is what gives it that really soulful, haunting tone over those chord changes. And um, a lot of guys wouldn't get that. They would just go, you know, back and forth at the, from the D to the E, the whole step. Um, but, but getting back to the Zeppelin thing, um, I now I forgot where I was going with that. It we were talking was, about uh, when you were learning how to learn. You sat with that solo. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was convinced that it was going to be some trial and error. Um, but, but I was determined to do it. And one of the things about learning another, another guitar part, you know, from someone is that there are two parts for me, two part. One is the first part is you have to understand what they're doing. Okay. And then the second part is you have to practice until you can actually play it that way. Okay. So you have to know what they're doing. Then you have to be able to play it because there are sometimes like an Eddie Van Halen, you know, God rest his soul. Um, when I hear something he's playing and I think, I don't even know what that is. I, 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 I can't figure out what he's doing, but then, you know, I might see a video or something and I'll say, Oh, that's what he's doing. So I understand what he's doing now, but I cannot physically execute it. So then I'm going to sit and listen and work at it until I can actually play it. So and maybe that sounds elementary to you, but but for me, the two parts are one, understanding what they're doing, and then two, being able to actually execute that. Yeah, actually, that that's not um, that's not obvious what you're describing. I I, I think, um, and, and I want to get right in on something in in terms of your 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 growing up. The question I'm going to ask you is, what players did you hear that inspired you to go to another level? And the reason why I'm going to ask that in the context of what we're just talking about is, I see a lot of young players they get a sound in their head, they buy a, a toy box, a pedal or whatever, and it gives them a buzzy tone, and that actually impedes their learning because they're more about that sound than they are about being able to articulate a, a quality note and build a solo. But you, you seem to be more, had been more concerned about really executing the whole musicality of, of a piece. And I just wondered again, who, who, uh, you know, who, and so who, were, who were the early guys that you listened to and you were like, yeah, I wanna not play like him, but he inspires me to play. Yeah. Yeah. There were, there were some really, um, you know, I had a lot of friends that I, that I jammed with over the years and um, we would always, we used to, you know, compete a little bit with each other. Like, Oh, I can play this. Can you play that? You know? Um, but in terms of uh, like professionals, I'd say early on, well, uh, Bob DePiro, Bobby D, the fellow that in high school, he taught me the first pentatonic scale, right? Do, 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 do. And the first time I bent that G string, on the seventh fret in the key of A and went, I thought, oh man, this is, this is, this is terrific. And beyond that, like professional players, you know, it's funny, a lot of them start with a B. Like there was Jeff Beck. I used to listen to him a lot, particularly like the Wired and the Blow by Blow and, and those albums from the seventies, just some incredible work there. And uh, Richie Blackmore, Deep Purple. I used to study a lot of his stuff. Um, there was a fellow that I don't think he gets enough credit every now and then his name gets mentioned is Tommy Bolin. Mm -hmm. You know, Tommy Bolin had, had a couple of great solo albums, played with some terrific people like um, Billy Cobham. Oh, you the know, he's all over that spectrum, spectrum album. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and that really got him, you know, he had played with the James gang for a while and uh, the Spectrum album is what got him into Deep Purple when Richie Blackmore left Whoa. because David Coverdale, who was the singer I've read a few stories about this. David covered it. was walking around with a cassette tape of Spectrum. He's like, oh, man, we got to get this guy, you know? So they flew him out to and 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 um, and they, they just loved him right then. They said, we want this guy, you know? Um, and he played and Bolin played a lot of different styles. He could be really heavy. He could play slide. He could play funky. He could play soulful. And um, so he was a big influence. Um, Kenny Burrell. Uh, a really terrific player, and especially in, in my later years, 
I, I'm actually for the last 10 years, there's a jazz station out of Southern California that I'm, I have to confess I'm addicted to the station. <laughs> and and I, I, I'm, I'm hooked in for the BCDs of jazz, which is um, which is uh, Brubeck, Coltrane and Davis, you know, John Coltrane and, and Miles Davis. But but Kenny Burrell is in there. He and he and Joe Pass and those guys, they have that buttery, warm tone that it's just incredible. And the way they phrase, you know, like like those guys could like you think about phrasing, right? A lot of guys who have the technical prowess to just machine gun out a hundred notes, you know, like a barrage of notes within a bar of music. Um, you know, those aren't the guys that they're really expressing themselves. And, and you take a guy like a Joe Bonamassa, okay, who can do that mm-hmm. at will. You know, he can just like fire out a million notes in, in, in four beats and you'd be like, whoa, what happened? But if you listen to him playing when he does that live arrangement of his tribute to B.B. Uh, King's The Thrill Is Gone, it's the end of the song. And he's doing this aria all by himself. It's just him playing the guitar. And he has every opportunity to go into one of those shrapnel moments, you know, but he doesn't. He, he stays in this real soulful mood like B.B. would have probably. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, to have the, to have the discretion to to really focus on what is the message and what am I trying to say versus what is the physical nature of what I can just execute, you know, and throw in there. I know I've gone off the tangent a little bit there, Dom, but I hope that's all right. No, 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 that's fine. Um, I I just, I wanted to go back to Spectrum for a second because it's a funny story. Do you you know who the bass player on the Spectrum album is? Sklar, right? Leland Sklar. Yeah, yeah. Which is, who would have thought he would... (laughs) He's he's the most mellow bass player on the planet. I know it's like he'd walk across the street and do a session with James Brown, uh, James uh, Jackson Brown, yeah, or James Taylor, yeah. I, I, James I met, Taylor, that's I, it. Yeah. I, I met him on the James Taylor tour a while back, and and we we I, we talked about that. I said, I said, do you do you have a twin under the same name? We we kind of chuckled about it because it's just completely off the wall that album. But again, if, if any of our listeners don't know Spectrum, I remember the night that I bought that album. I bought Spectrum. And I and Ravi Shankar live in San Francisco on the same night when I was in high school, right? Oh, that was a big album, Robbie's too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I bring that album home, and uh, I wasn't prepared <laughs> for for that record, you know. And again, if any of our audience listening doesn't know the Billy Cobham Spectrum album, you know, Billy Cobham is, is just a, a, a drummer from another planet. But you know, the drums are are are. are there's this equal plane that all the instruments live on in that album. And Tommy Bolin really shines. Now he died very young, as I recall. Yeah, He died in December of uh, 76. Um, he had a, uh, had a heroin addiction um, in addition to being a pretty heavy partier. And, you know, I've, I've read quite a few stories about this too, but, but unfortunately, you know, he'd had too much of whatever he had that one night in Miami, they were opening for Jeff Beck. And uh, and it's it's really a shame, Don, because it, it's kind of a bittersweet thing. If, if you listen to Boland's records, like uh, Teaser and Private Eyes, his solo albums, or his work with Deep Purple on Come Taste the Band, um, some of the other stuff where he plays in, particularly Spectrum, it is just it, it's inspiring. It, it's melodic. It's it covers different genres of music. Um, but every every the one time I saw him live was when he was touring with Deep Purple and came to Pittsburgh. I think it was 75 or early 76. And uh, the, the videos I've seen of him live, are, they're disappointing. 
because you know he had he had uh, challenges with substance and and he wasn't always in the best shape when he was on tour and and that's one of the reasons that the deep purple uh, uh, that that iteration of deep purple they call it deep purple mark four that it didn't last because uh tommy Bowen had trouble holding up his end of the deal right you know, with the performance and knowing the parts to the songs and sure. all of that what a great conversation about uh randy's early development uh as a guitarist how he learned what he listened to i think for a lot of our listeners who just heard that section especially comments about uh, folks like Irving Kaufman, the amazing uh, musician cellist with the Pittsburgh Symphony and his influence on Randy and all the other things that influenced Randy. I think a lot of us as guitarists and, and general musicians can really relate to it. You can really hear Randy's passion for kind of combining uh, technique, education, personal development, and, and so on into the guitar. So again, I can't thank him enough. Again, we're listening to his conversation, the first section of the conversation with former Pennsylvania, now Colorado native, uh, Randy Brandt. In our next episode, we're going to hear a lot more about his influences and a little bit more uh, details about his uh, technical ability on the instrument and the kinds of things that he likes to do. So thanks for joining the Just Picks podcast. Look for our next episode where we will continue the conversation with Colorado's Randy Brandt.